0: Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, my ongoing series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today, I'll be talking about the music of the English composer Frank Denyer. That was The Hanged Fiddler by Frank Denyer, composed in 1973 and part of a collection of pieces called A Book of Emblems and Songs. It's scored for violin, a percussionist who plays bones and a small bass drum, and a drone instrument. You heard it there, played by three members of the Barton Workshop, Marika Kaiser, violin, Damien Harron, percussion, and Elizabeth Smalt, here playing the drone part on viola. It's from a CD of Denyer's music on the Tzadik label. The Hanged Fiddler is based on a story, common to Scottish and American traditions, amongst others, about a fiddler who is accused of horse-stealing and is sentenced to a public hanging. Before the noose is tightened, he's allowed to play from the gallows one last tune. Reaching the end of his performance, he abruptly snaps the fiddle in two and throws it into the coffin that will soon be his. Partly what attracts me to that piece, and to Frank Denny's music in general, is its very particular sense of melody. This is a composer who cares about his pitches. The score of The Hanged Fiddler notates the melodic line with great attention to the glissandi and portamenti between pitches, to grace notes, to other sorts of ornamentation, to microtonal inflections, and so on. I find it a joy to listen to this piece with its carefully crafted contours that weave in and out of tonal reference points. Contrast that piece with another from ten years later, After the Rain, and you'll see how Denier's melodic interests have remained consistent, and yet he's found all sorts of new ways to enrich them. In After the Rain, what immediately strikes you is the subtle way he passes melodic nuances between the instruments, and uses instrumental colour, rather extraordinary colours in this case, as a way of shaping melodic details. That was the opening of Frank Denier's After the Rain from 1983, scored for an ensemble of violin, shakuhachi, three ocarina players and percussionists, from a CD on the Continuum label and with an ensemble conducted by the composer. That piece was partly inspired by an event that occurred during the time Denyer spent in the late 70s as a research fellow at the University of Nairobi. Northwest Kenya had endured two whole years of drought with time seeming suspended, Denyer says, in the endless months of tropical heat. Suddenly, one day, there came a few minutes of rain. What had been a dead, lifeless, almost colourless environment, he says, blossomed, crawled and sang with animal and plant life of every kind. And there's a marvellous sense of colour and a feeling of regeneration, it seems to me, in this music. Quite apart from its melodic qualities... It's the extraordinary ensemble Denya has concocted for this piece and for many of his other works that has given his output a certain distinction, even a sort of notoriety, if one can use such a heavy term in the small world that is new music. After the Rain sets a Western violin and a Japanese shakuhachi alongside a collection of culturally non-specific ocarinas defined in the ancient cultures of China and Mesoamerica and took on a new lease of life in 19th century Italy as well as a percussionist who plays all sorts of things, including a friction drum, which you heard rumbling away in that extract, and an African raft rattle. I'd reckon between a third and a half of Denier's output is written for instrumental combinations that have never been brought together before. This makes his music very tasty, sonically, if at times rather impractical for ensembles and concert programmers. Although we shouldn't exaggerate these difficulties, after all, the London Sinfonietta managed to put on After the Rain some years back, and Denyer's recent orchestral piece, The Colours of Jellyfish, uses possibly the oddest collection of orchestral forces ever assembled. It was done successfully at the tectonics festivals recently in Iceland and in Scotland. Frank Denyer was born in London in 1943. After some years as a chorister at Canterbury Cathedral and a subsequent lengthy period of studies at the Guildhall School in London, he formed an ensemble for contemporary music, the Mouth of Hermes, and toured around with them and with occasional distinguished guests like Morton Feldman, whose music was very little known at that time. The ensemble played Denier's own music too, and here's a quick snippet from the archives of one such early piece, Objects and Interruptions, from 1967. It's rather different than the music I've played so far, and is partly aleatoric in conception, with some parts having free alignment with the others, something that's almost never found in Denyer's mature work. And it uses a piano, which he's never written for since. That was an extract from an archive recording of Frank Denier's Objects and Interruptions for Flute, Trumpet, Cello, Piano and Electric Organ, played by the mouth of Hermes in a recording made in London in the late 60s. Denier's ensemble gave his music a certain exposure, culminating in a portrait concert at the Festival d'Orléans in March 1973. But that concert also provoked a sort of crisis. Denier found himself dissatisfied with much of the music it included, and shortly thereafter he withdrew no fewer than seven of the nine works in the programme, discarded two entirely and rewrote the others, which, risen from the ashes, became a book of emblems and songs. It was a way of purging himself of unwanted residues from earlier influences, perhaps even of the entire 60s, the decade with the longest musical hangover in recent history. He then set out on the path that he's followed ever since. 1973 was a pivotal year for him in another sense, as it marked the beginning of an intense involvement with the music of non-Western cultures. That year, he undertook ethnomusicological fieldwork in the Kulu Valley in northern India. The following year, he began a PhD at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, specialising in Japanese music. And when that ended, he was appointed research fellow at the University of Nairobi for three years, ending in 1981. He studied the music of nomadic pastoralist tribes, such as the Pokot, even living amongst them for lengthy periods. The purpose of all these travels was manifold. Partly, it was an interest in the music itself and the role it played in the lives of the people who made it. Partly, it was a way of acknowledging that the boundaries of the world did not end in Western Europe, neither politically nor culturally. And while Denier produced interesting research material during those years, he never stopped composing. His music responded to the diverse traditions he encountered and adopted a healthy psychological distance from the musical world he'd left behind in London. Nothing he wrote during those years could remotely be called world music or crossover or any of the terms that would become fashionable in the 80s, the sort of thing produced by other musical travellers, such as the highly exploitative African Sanctus of David Fanshawe. Instead, it led Denyer to rethink such basic concepts as note, scale step, ornament, portamento. In the process, he developed a melodic language of great suppleness and richness. A key player in this endeavour was a marvellous musician he met while at Wesleyan University, the Japanese shakuhachi master Yoshikazu Iwamoto. Denyer produced a number of works over the next 25 years for Iwamoto, both solo and small ensemble pieces. He found that Iwamoto possessed quote, a whole technical and aesthetic approach to music that required a refined control of pitch inflection, rather than pinpoints, and subtle nuance. Here's an extract from one of these works, the second movement of Wheat, completed in Nairobi in 1981 and scored for Shakuhachi with two percussionists who in this movement play specially designed bamboo slit drums, sandpaper blocks and large metal plates. That was the second movement of Wheat by Frank Denyer, played by Yoshikazu Iwamoto, with Paul Hailey and the composer playing percussion. It's from a disc of Denyer shakuhachi music on the label Another Timbre. Contrast that with a piece written around the same time, a fragile thread, a two-movement work for bowed string instrument or voice, the non-specificity of instrumentation, suggesting, the composer says, the possibility of performance beyond the Western art music ambit as well as within it. At the time he composed it, Daniel in fact built a four-stringed instrument with a belly made of lizard skin. The instrument proved a bit heavy for the player to support, so here's a fine recent live performance of the first movement of a fragile thread on a heavily muted viola. That was the first movement of Frank Denier's A Fragile Thread from a live performance in 2010 by Elizabeth Smalt on muted viola. While that and the extract I played earlier from the Shakuhachi piece are very different, their distinctive melodic language clearly shows them to be the work of one and the same composer. If we can jump a few years forward, I'd like to play a snippet from a piece entitled Quartet that shows how, during the 1980s, Denier's melodic language began to infuse other than his solo line monophonic pieces. The quartet is called for the extraordinary combination of cymbalom, bass flute, doubling alto flute, steel pans, and double bass. I hear it as one of his most joyous inventions, music of considerable complexity and daring that infuses the listener with its colourful presence. Many different forms of quartet writing can be heard here. At times, the instruments play in emphatic unison, at others, they perform a fast hocketing, creating a musical back and forth in the timbre of the melodic line, as still other times they pair off and have dialogues. That was an extract from Frank Denyer's Quartet from 1990 from a portrait disc on the Etc. label. The musicians were Jan Rokita, Jos Vannenburg, Marcel Onderisse, and Jos Timon, and the conductor Walter Althammer. By this time, Denyer had returned to England, in 1981 to be exact, and began teaching at Dartington College of Arts in Devon, where he remained for the next two and a half decades and where I first met him in 1995. Being at a distance from the London music scene, both geographically and mentally, doesn't seem to have greatly bothered him, and several of the works of the 1980s were composed for players either resident at or passing through Dartington, including Yoshikazu Ibomoto, who was for a time resident there. In 1988, Denyer completed his largest work to that time, one that went far beyond the modest forces he'd, he'd mostly written for until then. A Monkey's Paw a half-hour-long fresco for seven voices and 13 instrumentalists, was premiered at Darmstadt in 1990. The piece is one of the milestones in Denier's output, not just because of its scope and ambition, but also because of its subject matter. Its starting point was the image of a hideously decayed monkey's paw kept hidden inside a small drum and used in the healing ceremonies Denyer had witnessed in East Africa. He was struck by the fact that a grotesque object like that should hold the secret of regeneration and of renewed human health. It became for him a sort of metaphor for the sense of new life emerging from a morass of dead or decaying matter. This theme is foregrounded in much of the music Denier has produced since. Like all the best artists, he doesn't claim to have easy solutions, but is concerned to pose the question over and over again, groping his way to a tentative understanding. Here's an extract from the Darmstadt performance of A Monkey's Paw. Part of A Monkey's Paw by Frank Denyer, conducted by James Wood, with Irvine Arditi as a solo violinist. You heard him there towards the end. That recording is from a wonderful Continuum CD of Denyer's music, released in the early 90s and still apparently available but rather hard to come by. The theme of the upheavals of civilization and of dispossessed peoples has been of increasing relevance to Denyer's work since A Monkey's Paw. One poignant expression of this comes in a pair of works called Out of the Shattered Shadows, written in the late 90s. Out of the Shattered Shadows 2 is an early expression of Denyer's renewed interest in very quiet sounds. It wasn't an entirely new thing, as works like A Fragile Thread that I played earlier are not exactly loud. But in Out of the Shattered Shadows 2 we find also the use of offstage musicians, something to which he's returned in subsequent works, the quality of whose sound, extremely delicate and fragile, cannot be attained in any other way. Musicians, it should be said, generally don't like to perform stage. There's the problem of not being able to see the conductor unless there's a reliable monitor, and of not being able to show off their concert attire properly. But in the two performances of these pieces I assisted with, none of the offstage musicians actually complained. In Out of the Shadow Shadows, 2, there are three offstage musicians, a cornet a muted violin, and a female voice. When they're first heard, about halfway into this 15-minute piece, the effect is quite extraordinary. Partly, it's as though the doors of a concert hall have been opened, and we become aware that they've been there quietly the whole time. And partly because they're not a huddled mass. They are three solitary individuals, separated spatially, and quite distinct timbrally. This seems to have a strong symbolic meaning, though exactly what that is resists easy formulation. This offstage music can be hard to capture on CD, but it comes across brilliantly on this recording made late at night in Dartington Hall in Devon by John Whiting. You'll hear first the very quiet and sparse onstage music, and especially if you're listening with headphones, beware the very loud bang just before the offstage musicians enter. part of Frank Denier's Out of the Shattered Shadows 2, from 1999, performed on that Mode Records disc by the Barton Workshop. In his most recent compositions, this interest in very quiet sounds has persisted, even to the point of becoming obsessive. In the works he's written in the past decade, the extreme stillness is often shattered, as in that piece, by very loud bangs, usually emanating from unconventional sources. A very large plywood box, as we heard here, percussion staves, which are six-foot wooden sticks with large tambourine discs and heavy metal rings attached to them, or the sound of a large axe slicing through wood. It's as though our attempts to make a quiet, delicate and subtle music are repeatedly being destroyed by a brutal force coming from we know not where. I'd like to end by playing you a complete piece from this most recent phase of Denyer's work. Riverine Delusions, from 2007. This was the last piece he composed for the Amsterdam-based ensemble The Barton Workshop, with which he had performed as a pianist for more than 15 years before the ensemble's demise. But the work is less an act of closure than of new beginnings. A more flexible attitude to time is one aspect of this. So too is the striving for a more linear continuity, for ever longer spans of music. The piece, Denyer says, contains some of the subtlest things I've done. One example, as you'll hear here, is the quiet unison melody on bass flute and bass clarinet, about two and a half minutes in. It's played here so accurately that it seems like only one instrument. Like a river, perhaps, the piece has no clear beginning and end, as though it were a passing fragment of a more continuous music. Thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities and we end this program with a performance by the Barton Workshop from a forthcoming CD on another timbre of Frank Denier's Riverine Delusions.